Hello and welcome to the Rugby Hive. I'm Dan Stanford, and despite my South African accent, I was fortunate enough to play rugby for the United States on the Sevens World Series. And I'm Robin McDowell, a former Canadian Sevens international. Back in my playing days, I went head-to-head against Dallin and the USA. For several years, Robin has coached international sevens for various countries, including Canada and Mexico. He's massively passionate about growing the game across the Americas through his McDool rugby programs at all levels. I'm currently a commentator for World Rugby, most recently broadcasting the Rugby World Cup in Japan, as well as the amazing Sevens World Series. More than a decade later, we are teaming up to bring you insights from legendary players and coaches from around the world. All legends have a story. The Rugby Hive podcast is here to share it. Welcome to the Hive. Today's guest is one of the greatest centers of all time. His partnership with Walter Little would give even Freddy Krueger nightmares. He represented Samoa at the 1991 Rugby World Cup and four years later played for New Zealand in the 1995 Rugby World Cup final. At the time, he was the most capped all-black center with a record 55 tests and a score of 100 international points. Here is New Zealand legend Frank Bunce. Kia ora to one of my favorite people, an all-black warhorse, if you will, unbelievable storyteller. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bansi. A pleasure. Pleasure, Dan. Kia ora. So that, that's all I know. That's the limit to my... my... <laughs> that's right. That's all I know, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is going on, my friend? How, how are you doing? And uh, I know New Zealand has been the envy of everybody around the globe. 40,000 fans, you know, weekly getting together for live rugby matches. Um, that's pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, we um, we have done. I, I think uh, you know we have done it done it well. The government's looked after us, and uh, you know it's it's been difficult, but uh, you know everybody's going through it. But the good thing is, you know, we're we're a small country and basically a you know in a, a small island down in the the bottom of the world. So um, you know, if uh, if anyone was going to do it well, I think we were, and um, you know our. I guess the the government, the leadership, all of that sort of Yahoo has uh, has been really good for us, and you know people were were crying out for um, for everything, not just sport, but um, you know when live sport came back and uh, and it coincided really with the um, with the uh, end of our sort of lockdown or the loosening of the restrictions, and uh, everyone just got out and uh, you know we were treated to some some great um, great games and some uh, you know some uh, some fun in terms of live sport. No, it was, it was phenomenal to see. Yeah, it is, it is pretty small, 4 million people. I know there's there's uh, more folks at Five my million, local... 5 million, yeah. 5 million now, okay. Well, there's more folks at my local Starbucks, you know, on the weekend. Uh, so things here <laughs> in the US are pretty crazy. But listen, you're, you're very elusive, more elusive than Bigfoot, I will say. Uh, so let's let's get into the chat, my friend. Um, why don't we go all the way back a good, uh, a good 50 to 60, 70 years and tell us about your childhood growing up. Ooh, um, I was, uh, well, still am a South Auckland boy. And um, uh, eight children in our family, so uh, four boys, four girls, my siblings, uh, parents. Uh, my father was in the Navy. My mother knew Anne, who came over from Newe when she was uh, very young. Met my father and married and, as I say, had the eight kids. And um, basically, we just did what a whole lot of other you know, kids around that era did because there was no, you know, there was no cell phones and there was no computer games and, and the like back in those days. So we were all out and about, you know, just uh, just running free, you know, just different days. 
and uh, you're able to sort of roam the countryside and, and get up to whatever you got up to. But, you know, we were lucky because um, everyone in our family was quite sporting. My parents were sporting, so it sort of, it come down and uh, local rugby club in the area. And we just sort of all gravitated to that and, and sports was the thing. So um, that just carried on. I'm still a member of the same club, you know, some 50 years later. And uh, the sad thing is, you know, you go up there and there's still some of the same people that are leaning on the same bar leaners, you know, and uh, you haven't been there at times for, I remember when I played overseas for a bit and then I went back and I hadn't been back there for, you know, for near 10 years, probably six, seven, eight years. And I walk in and they go, oh, what are you doing? You know, where you been? I said, man, I haven't been here for eight years. Oh, really? Oh, shit. You know, and so they were quite surprised at that. Nothing, nothing changed. Just goes to show nothing changes. So um, that's pretty much me, really. You know, schooling, nothing. You know, just a just a normal childhood, out playing sport, going to school, having fun, and uh, and growing up. But what are some sports you played outside of rugby growing up? Um, I played a bit of uh, not a lot because there wasn't a huge amount on offer. But I played uh, I played a bit of rugby league. A um, bit of hockey, a bit of uh, netball, which is a girls' game uh, here, down here. It's a female sport, but uh, I played a bit of that. A um, bit of volleyball, you know. Wasn't much good at uh, at most of those other things, but, um, you know, it was, it was just a bit of fun. Rugby seemed to work out for you. And uh, yeah. who were some of your early childhood role models growing up? Um, I always liked... Uh, I don't know if you remember, there's a guy down here, B.G. Williams. I think he's the president of New Zealand Rugby Union. But he was the first sort of, like he was Jonah Lomu, you know, from back in the day. And uh, he made the All Blacks as a uh, as an 18, no, 18 or 19-year-old. He was a wing. A Samoan guy had uh, a huge legs, you know, and he just had this great, just great style about him, great flair, you know, and sidestep, a huge sidestep and... Um, you know, he toured South Africa, I think, in, must have been the mid-70s, maybe. He was about 19 or some, something like that. But, um, you know, and uh, he, he was kind of the, the guy that uh, a lot of us, you know, us um, younger Polynesian boys who were just getting into it were, were looking up to. What sort of challenges did you have to face and overcome before you became an international rugby player? Um, oh, I think it was... Uh, you know, I, I came from a pretty unfashionable suburb, and you know, we didn't have a lot growing up. And um, and the, where we are in, in South Auckland, um, it, it's it's a bit of a hot spot for talent now. You know, it just just about everybody bloody comes out of here, and uh, you can walk down the street and tap someone on the shoulder and ask them if they want a game. You know, because you're short, and they'll turn around and be awesome. You know, it's that, it's that sort of place. But um, I think I was. Because my, my club was, you know, we were pretty, um, we, you know, we struggled. They're still struggling. You know, didn't have a lot of money in the middle of a real working class blue collar area. A lot of uh, Polynesian and, uh, and, um, and Maori and, and um, working class, you know, white folk. So, um, uh, you know, we weren't looked on, you know, that kindly in terms of, uh, you know, when, when teams were being selected, if you came from certain clubs, then you, you had more of a chance of, uh, of being selected than if you came from other clubs, you know. So um, uh, I guess I had to overcome that. Um, that was probably the biggest thing. You know, you go and you, uh, you, you, 
you play in trials and things like that and and uh, you know hardly ever get selected and that, that, that went through it wasn't only me there was a number of other other folk but um, in terms of uh, other things I guess there was me as well you know I wasn't really probably as motivated as I should have been or, or as driven as I should have been I kind of and I still do now much to Jessica's uh, disgust is um, is just let things kind of uh, go and, and happen to me you know rather than you know go out and and um, and set goals and, and really work for them. So um, there was probably a little bit of that on, on my part, which took, uh, you know, I, I guess it, uh, that was the thing that made it bloody so long before I got selected, started getting selected and, you know, and then you, then you step back and realize, Oh, geez, I can do this. So, uh, you know, it's, it was a bit of myself and a bit of where I come from, I think. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a different road to the top for everybody. And, you know, yeah. I've done a lot of talent ID in the last 10 years and, and often like we've looked at the numbers of the athletes that for example play for Canada or played for Canada and most of them are from what we call tier two schools tier two high schools i.e like public schools not the not the well-off uh, heavily funded private schools and uh and and those are the ones you want you know obviously New Zealand's produced a lot of a lot of boys that have come from the farm right and uh yep. um the Barrett the Barrett uh uh trifecta is is a good example of that but uh, yeah, those are the yeah. ones that they've been run over by by cattle their whole life they're you know rugby's rugby's not so bad um yeah. but uh, let's uh, let's jump into your samoa experience you you had an opportunity to re represent uh um western samoa at the 91 world cup how did you qualify for menu samoa um i uh yeah, that was, it's a good question. It still gets asked of me just about every time I'm out and about, uh, mostly by Samoans. But um, I was, uh, BG, the guy I was just talking about, he was, um, he was the coach and the World Cup obviously was, was coming up. Samoa were really upset that they hadn't been selected in uh, 1987 for the first one. Um, you know, Fiji came in and um, was it Tonga? There's, there's a few other countries anyway that, uh, that Samoa thought that they should have been uh, ahead of. And um, so my mother is born in Niue, which is another small island in the Pacific. And uh, but she's got uh, a she's got a little bit of Samoan heritage. Her father was was half Samoan, so um, that's kind of where where my my bloodline came. Uh, I got approached by BG, oh by Peter Fats actually, Peter Fatsilofa. Um I got approached by him, and uh, and he asked if I was uh, I was in. He'd been asking me actually over the over the years, but um, I'd sort of you know I always had this this. Um, thought in my mind that I'd, uh, I could become an All Black. Not that I was doing anything about it. I wasn't actively sort of going out there and trying to become an All Black. I just thought, you know, uh, arrogantly maybe that, uh, that it would happen. And um, so we did that and then Fats came along and started asking and he said, there's, uh, you know, we've got this World Cup coming up next year that we've been accepted into and we really want to make a good showing of it and, uh, and all of that. So um, I had to have a little think about it. He said to me that... Um, I've got to, you know, this is your last chance, you know, and you've got to face the facts. And I said, well, what are the facts? And he goes, you're never going to be an All Black. And I was like, well, I think he actually, you know, and then it, that kind of dawned on me. I thought maybe he's right. So uh, I gave it a little bit of thought and uh, and uh, I qualified because back in those days, you didn't have to have a, any sort of percentage, you know, in terms of uh, blood uh, or anything like that. Um, they took it back to the government and they, 
they said, yep, that's, that's okay, because I, I did have, you know, it was true, it, it, was, it was a very small amount, um, but uh, I did have it. So they came back and okayed it. And, uh, and I thought to myself, well, might as well go and do this. And World Cup, you know, was, uh, you know, it was the greatest thing to happen in rugby. It, you know, back in those days, so still is, but, um, you know, back in those days, it was only the second one. And I thought, man. So um, I, I put my hand up and said yes. And then, you know, that was we're away. I still had to go through quite a bit of, uh, in terms of culture and, and things like that, you know, you had to go through a little bit of learnings and, uh, and um, I've been to Samoa a few times. And, you know, I obviously grew up around a whole lot of island people. But um, in terms of culture, my own culture, I was, um, I was a little bit lacking. So, um, you know, we had to, had to do a little bit of work on that, but all, all worked out in the end. It did. And, and Frank, you're part of a wonderful team, one of the greatest uh, Western Samoan sides or Samoan sides in Rugby World Cup history, making the quarterfinals. Um, tell us a bit about your team and some of the memories you have of attending that uh, amazing event. Uh, yeah, you're right about the team. We had, you know, we had Peter Fats and we had, um, we had uh, Stephen Bishop. We had another guy, Matafa Keenan, who was uh, Cook Island but he had a bit of Samoan blood, Stephen Bishop, uh, who was a brother. He became an all-black as well, uh, but and brother of Graham Bishop, who was all-black halfback at the time. Um, uh, we oh, we had some great, you know, some great guys, some um, some guys that had played a lot of rugby down in, in New Zealand in the provincial championship and represented Samoa for, you know, for quite a few years. And there was a good mix, and you know, Samoa had decided that they would go out and uh, and, and start looking around, you know, in Auckland and New Zealand and Australia, and see who was there that uh, that could possibly qualify and, and might want to. And um, you know, there's a couple of Wallabies now, um, young uh, front rowers, and one playing for the Crusaders, Alalatoa. The two boys, and their their father is Vili Alalatoa, which who was our prop in that game, and. Um, Oh, we no, we had some, we had some, you know, some really, really good players, um, you know, and guys who, Samoa didn't play a lot of rugby back in those days, but um, you know, had it been these times, they were, you know, they were, they were great players, and the, you know, all these guys had come through, and it was, you know, it was, it was natural, you know, really. So, um, yeah, we we got together and we trained, and um, you know, we did a little bit of. That's when the, you know, the. Um, the, the the Manu Samoa, you know, before games that they're, they're doing now, they, um, that's when that first was written. So they came to training one day and, and told us all about it and showed us and, and said, this is what you guys are going to be doing in front of, uh, you know, in, 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 in front of the crowds in your games. And uh, when we first saw it, it was like, especially the guys who were, you know, born, born and bred in New Zealand, we were looking at it going, holy shit, you know, how the hell are we going <laughs> to... But uh, it took us ages to learn that. But anyway, you know, that's... Uh, it's that's long gone now, but uh, it was it was great. You know, we had a we had a really great um, uh, uh, culture in the team, and we had uh, you know the coaching staff. We we just did things as they were done back in those days. You know, we'd go there, went up to Wales and uh, and and trained, and we trained hard all the time. And we lost a couple of props out of you know the the couple of weeks we had up there before before we played any matches, and you know we were going out having a good time in Cardiff, and you know. Hardly any of the guys had been up there before, so you know we were just enjoying ourselves, and uh, it all came to a to a front because we, you know, we were getting a bit stir crazy actually, and um, and guys were there was a bit of arguing going on, and we weren't training you know that well, and you know it was uh, so Fats called us all together and gave us a bit of a blast, and uh, and we had a really open sort of open session 
you know, and and everybody had their their woes and and their troubles and that. And so that was that was really good. And that was only a few days out from our first game against um, against Wales. And uh, but I think that was you know it was a good call on Fats's part because we really really needed to you know just to get things out out in the open. And uh, went out and then um, had you know had a had a great win. I look back on it now and. Um, you know, there's there's so many things that uh, you know that that we did that we did well, but then you know, also we did poorly. And in Wales, you know, you go back because you don't really do revision and things like that. You know, especially back in those days, it was just play the game. You know, um, talk about it over a few beers at the bar, and then get on with things for the next you know for the next game. So, um, no, it was great. You know, we had that game, and then we and we played. You know. Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, you know, so there was three games a week and, and I think we got a week off before our quarterfinal, which was uh, against Scotland. But, um, you know, we just went about our business. We were, we played, um, we played Wales, we beat them. We're in the, uh, we had a good time in the, at the after match and, uh, you know, um, Fats always enjoyed himself. So we were going home at bloody two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning. And then we were out training at 10, you know, and then we had a game two, two days later against Australia. So, uh, you know, it kind of carried on like that through the, uh, through the tournament. Yeah, I love hearing about that because, uh, you know, that reminds most of us as our club rugby days. But this is international. Yeah. This is a Rugby World Cup, you know. So I want to touch on that fact against Australia, though. You were the only side to deny them from scoring a try in the tournament. You guys lost by a narrow six points. Um, how do you guys manage that against the eventual champions? And, and was it because, you know, you obviously had something to prove for, for your new adopted country? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that was the, um, you know, going into going into, um, you know, all of those games really was was something to prove. And uh, I remember against Wales. Sorry, I'll just go back. We, you know, we we didn't just game plans. You know, I keep saying, you know, that's what it was like back in those days. But that's what what it was like, you know. And and uh, we had a, a general plan, you know. And we thought to ourselves, well, you know, what do we have that that they don't? And it was kind of, you know, we could. We, we had total confidence in ourselves. We thought we could match them in, you know, in, um, in, in, in skill and ability and speed and, you know, all of that, all the technical stuff. But, um, so, you know, the one thing we have that they don't have is like a real physicality. So um, we thought, well, we're just going to go out there and we're just going to smash the shit out of anyone who comes, you know, sort of your way. And, you know, we did. And there were guys, you know, the Welsh were, you know, two or three guys, Apollo Perolini, you know, who was a um, just a young fella back then, and he, I think, he put two or three guys off by himself. You know, broken collarbones and and something else, and broken ribs and and things. So, um, you know, we we kind of had that that, and I guess, you know, not a lot of not a lot of people had seen, not a lot of people had, had uh, or teams had shown. You know, you might have have um, you know one or two big hitters in a team, but these guys, you know, you had out of the fifteen, you had ten who were you know. Big hitters and Brian Lima, he was a an eighteen year old, you know, and man, he was called the chiropractor when he was bloody nearly forty. You should have seen him when he was eighteen. He was, you know, he was a killer that guy. So uh, and there were, you know, and there were guys in that team like him, uh, you know, three or four others who could do the same thing. So um, we just thought, well, we're gonna just gonna get stuck into everybody. And uh, Australia was a you know, and because they're kind of close neighbours, and there was a lot of there was some of the um, some of our boys who lived in Australia and had played a lot with these guys, and uh, you know, we we kind of we you just kind of know them, so uh, we thought we'd get stuck in. We got nothing to lose anymore, you know. So um, 
so we got stuck in and I must admit it was a it was a pretty crappy night in the, in the valleys and so it was wet and cold and uh, you know it was a the leveler you know the weather is the great leveler the mud is the great leveler so we just got stuck into them man and uh, and did the same thing and and uh, you know it's it's all test match rugby is all about pressure so um you just you know everything on attack on defense it's all about pressure it's put them under pressure and it uh, it kind of worked for us so uh, we're pretty proud about that and you know, we had opportunity even to probably win that game so um that we didn't take but um you know we're pretty pretty proud of what we did yeah, you had some epic plays. Speaking of the chiropractor, I know uh, Springbok Flower from back in the day, Derek Hochard, still wakes up this day at three in the morning with night terrors uh, from uh, the chiropractor's shoulders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, he, um, I remember there was a guy, Matthew Cooper, who was, a, he was an all-black midfielder down here. And uh, we, before we went, um, before the World Cup, we played on a, a little tour of New Zealand. And... Um, the chiropractor got Matthew Cooper. Someone threw a, a sort of a high looping pass to him, and he was telling us after the game, even as his arms went up, he said he the only he wasn't even thinking about the ball. The only thing he could think about was that Brian Lima was going to get him, and he got him. It was beautiful. So I think he has the same uh, the same nightmares. I do a lot of coaching at, at, at the international level and grassroots and stuff. And, and I focus a lot on my coach education now. And, you know, nowadays we overthink everything, but uh, I've, I've definitely, um, as I've been maturing as a coach, um, been having a lot more relaxed approach with the teams, especially in a centralized environment or most importantly on tour and uh, not trying to overcoach, not trying to overspeak. Um, and you were talking about the good old days, of the 91 world cup and, and sounds like the team was just kind of forming as well. So how much, how much do those, those quiet beers on the town help to, to mold that team? They weren't quiet. <laughs> I was keeping it PG, but yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, anyone who knows Peter Fats would, uh, would know what type of, uh, what type of nights on the town he, he prefers. <laughs> but uh, you're right though. Um, they, they're huge. You know, it's uh um, you know, in teams, there's a lot of work being put into, you know, into culture. And uh, we kind of didn't, we didn't have this. We had it, but we didn't know what it was, you know, and we didn't have a name for it. And I think that's kind of the truth for a lot of things these days um, where, you know, a name's been put to something that's kind of been happening for years and years and years. But um, I think what you're, what you're doing is, you know, is right in terms of not trying to overcoach or overthink things or over talk. You know, everything's a real balance. You know, I, I geez, I, I take my hat off to you because I couldn't be a coach. I just don't have it in me to, you know, to be that disciplined or that. Um, geez, I don't know. There's just, just, you know, I didn't. When do you get time to coach? That's the thing. You got to be a, a man manager. You got to be everything. You know, relationship expert and and uh, and psychologist and and everything. But um, you need. You need time to relax. You need time to to wind down. You need time to, um, you know, to just to just talk and talk to the guys that you've been through. You know, battle. You've been through this thing with every every game you play. You know, there's there's what five ten trainings that you've gone through as well, and leading up to this game. So you can't just carry on. You know, at this level, peak for a game, and then carry on again and get ready for the next one. You've got to have time to relax. You've got to have time to, to let 
just let go of things. And I think that uh, doing it with your friends, with a, you know, with some quiet beers and stuff like that, and, and just having a good Yahoo and a laugh, I think that's invaluable. You know, and, and in terms of a team, um, you know, a culture again, um, you know, it's it's it is it's invaluable. It's you, you can't I can't think of anything better. You know, anything because a lot of things are forced on you. You know, team building. Um, I don't know, revision of games and, and, and things like that. But um, there are times when you just need to get away from that, just sit down because you're playing the game because he's your mate, you love the game, you know, you're, it, it, it's, it is, and it's a game and it's supposed to be fun. So you need time to, to reflect on that and, and to, to sit back and where well, there's no pressure, you know, you just get a few beers, have a laugh and, you know, poke fun at your mates, he pokes fun back at you and then that's it and you go home. Yeah, that's I love how you described that, and and that's what really sold us into into the sport and going back full circle to you know you going back to your home club and experiences I've had uh, being back in my home club too. Uh, I remember traveling up and down. We used to have a, an old school bus. They still do. I think it breaks down every 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 two weeks. But uh, we travel up and down Vancouver Island uh, and and go hit up all the other clubs, and it's always sing songs on the way home. We got some talented musicians. Uh, in the club, but on the side of our bus, so we don't get pulled over by the the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, it says uh, Couchin International Choir Bus. So rather than saying Couchin RFC, it says International Choir Bus because we'd always be singing. But in those days, I'd be sitting at the front of the bus dreaming about, uh, you know, playing for Canada and traveling around the world and the things that I would later do. But then I'd find myself on a bus on the other side of the world living my dream and missing my boys and missing the sing song yeah, and missing that yeah. too. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, rugby definitely is, is something that, uh, you know, getting kids on tour, it really hooks them into the sport and takes them forward. That is yeah, such an yeah. incredible, uh, story for you to have represented two countries. And, uh, obviously not long after the 91 world cup, you, uh, you started pursuing, uh, representing New Zealand, your home country. What was that, uh, story like and how did that all unfold for you um after the uh you know I, I was happy after the 91 world cup i was happy i'd i'd um you know we'd had a pretty successful um world cup the, you know the uh we, we lost in the quarterfinal we were never expected to make the quarterfinal but um but we lost you know beaten by uh by scotland and Disappointed, yeah, but happy at, at what we'd achieved, and uh, you know, we we went back to back to um, Samoa, had this great, you know, homecoming and welcome and everything, and everyone was in a high. That you know, um, people were just so proud, so it was great, you know. And I was I was more than happy to just continue on, you know, with them and, and do what I was doing and and just go where you know where it took me, basically. And then I got a phone call because uh, New Zealand hadn't um, hadn't done too well. They'd had a pretty poor uh, World Cup, and uh, and so they got rid of the coaches and everything. And some of the players were had retired, you know. And, that, and then they bought a guy called Laurie Maines, who was a he was a long time coach in New Zealand um, from the deep south, from Dunedin, and he uh, he got given the spot, and he rang me up. Just you know, right out of the blue, just rang me one day and said, um, "You know, what are you thinking?" He goes, "You know, you probably know that I've been given the job for next next season." So uh, he said, "I just want to let you know that you're in the frame. If if you if you think it's something you want to do, he goes, I'll give you a chance." He goes, 
I don't care how old you are, because I was 29 at that point. He goes, I don't care how old you are. He goes, if you, um, if you want to, he goes, I'll give you, I'm not, I'm not promising you anything. He goes, but I'll give you a shot. So I was like, oh, that, you know, that threw the spanner in the works. So, um, you know, and I, and I knew, I knew pretty much when I hung up, you know, I was, I was going to do it because it had always been a dream. Uh, you know, any, any, any rugby boy growing up in New Zealand wants to be an All Black. So um, there was an opportunity there. So I thought, well, all right. And then, uh, so there's, you know, after that was the hard part was obviously um, getting getting the Samoan side of it all sort of sorted out. And uh, given that they'd given me my my big break, but I talked to a few people and uh, and they, because uh, back in those days, you know, as well, um, the the kind of the All Blacks were the Samoan second team, but they kind of viewed it as a as a um, uh, you know, a bit of kudos for them for Samoa to have more people, more of you know heritage or Samoan people stepping into the All Blacks because it's like, well, there we go again. You know, it's another matter of uh, matter of pride for them. So um, I got, you know, I, I've never really had any negative, um, you know, good 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 natured negative comments, but uh, never really had any 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 bad ones. So um, I just made the decision then and, and told Laurie Mains, "Yep, yeah, I'm keen." So. Uh, then you just go through a you know a trial period and all black trials back in those days and north south game which they're looking at reviving very shortly so uh yeah you just have to go through that process again and uh and you go through all of that and the one thing you you know you go into uh into an all black environment after being in uh in the Samoan one man the you know the the level of everything just straight up expectation pressure you know and and uh, everything just went um, just went bang. So um, I got through that. I was lucky enough to get through the trials and things. That name, you know, those who made it and those who didn't, nothing. It's just a goodbye. You didn't even get a goodbye. That was it. You just said, these are the guys that we want. Come with us. And the rest of you were just kind of left standing there. And so they got through, you know, two lots of that north-south game. And so when, when I finally got named, because they do it in public too, they, you know, at the aftermatch function, the final trial you play. And I remember I was down in Napier and you play in the final trial, you go into a room, everyone's kind of standing around, you know, and everyone's got their parents there and every, you know, you just kind of, then they get up, okay, your black squad is blah, 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 blah. So everyone's, yeah, and then those who didn't make it are just kind of there and you just sit down in the corner and have another sip of your beer and your mother gives you a hug and that's it. And then you go home. So, uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to get through that, and uh, then we just so I was, it was actually you know it wasn't a it wasn't a jump up and down cheering moment for me. It was a, a real sense of relief, you know, more than anything to hear your name called out. So you just sit down and you know then kind of take it in, and then we went straight into camp because we had some uh, test matches against the World Fifteen because it was the hundredth year anniversary. That's right, the centenary of New Zealand Rugby Union, and. Uh, yeah, so we went straight into camp, and um, and I was in there. You know, the good thing is you're in there with a few people that you know. So, uh, well, quite a few people that you you know and have played, you know, the the game with. So I was in there with Walter Little and uh, some of the other guys from up, you know, all around Auckland and North Harbour that um, that uh, you know we'd played a lot of rugby together. So it made life a little bit easier. But you know, you, you're never really you're never really equipped for. You know, you, especially that first, you know, you get used to it. But when you're thrown in the deep end at the very beginning, everything's hard. But um, And Laurie Maines was, uh, you know, he was a coach with uh, 
with his own style. We'll put it that way. <coughs> He'd never be able to coach now. He just doesn't have the <laughs> he doesn't have the skills, and he doesn't care for them, and he doesn't want them. You know, the the man management skills, that sort of that side of it. He just wouldn't be able to cope with uh, with um, you know looking after the the headspace, you know, and the you know everything else that goes with being a coach. You know, I don't have to tell you there, Rob. Yeah. Well, we all, we all had those coaches. Um, that's why, uh, I'm, I'm trying to look at other techniques to make it fun, but, uh, you went on to have an epic career, uh, for the all blacks cap 50, 55 times, um, at the time, the most capped all black center and, uh, just looking back and there's probably a million of them, but what were some of the memories that really stood out to you in a, in an all blacks Jersey? Uh, I'd have to say, um, your first, you know, the first, first test with your first game, first test, whatever it is. But, um, but the first one, you know, when you're able to put on that jersey, they, you know, they present the jersey to you. And, you know, it's, as, as, you know, as I say, as a young rugby playing kid, you know, it's the, it's the dream. So you get the jersey and you, you know, have a look at it. And, you know, it's, uh, you're just in awe of the jersey. So I remember that and then running out and, you know, you just felt, well, I don't know, you just kind of felt important. You know, what you were doing was important. You know, and you're running out and you're representing the team and uh, other country, I should say. And, you know, it's just, it's just a, you just feel great about it. Um, we lost that very first game that I played in. So, you know, that, the greatness didn't last too long. Um, but that, uh, the World Cups, you know, if, you, if I'm quickly going over a, uh, you know, a career, World Cups were, you know, they were magic because you played, you know, you're in the same... You're in the same area, tournament. Every the the best players you're playing with and against the you know the best in the world, and um, you know tournaments. Uh, tournaments are you know the, especially the knockout tournaments there. I, I you know really thrive. I, I I think they're wonderful things those tournaments. So and love that. And you know and, and uh, not just saying this for Dallin, but South Africa. You know where we played in that, especially in that '95 tournament. You know. If you can't play good rugby in South Africa, you're never going to play it because, you know, the conditions are awesome and uh, the crowds, you know, the crowd's really knowledgeable. And apart from when you're getting abused, you know, late at night, uh, especially in Cape Town. But, um, you know, you, you just have, you just meet meet great people over the time. You, you, you tour great countries, you experience, you know, wonderful things. So, um, and rugby is a kind of a, even though it's all for rugby, the game, it's still just a game, you know, you're still just bloody enjoying it because you're playing with your mates and, uh, but it offers you a whole lot more, uh, you know, I think, um, I think my rugby career has been, um, been a wonderful, you know, part of my life. Frank, I know that, uh, this podcast, people can't necessarily see this, but I'm wearing a Cape Town hat, so that's probably why you made that nice jab, you know, but listen, <laughs> let, let, let's talk about this. 25 years ago, you played in that Rugby World Cup final and I want to say, 42 million South Africans watching. Um, can you talk, talk us about that day, obviously skipping what you had for breakfast? Yeah, shit. Um, I was, well, we, I, I won't skip it. We were in a hotel. So, uh, you know, I always go and, and – because uh, you never get breakfast cooked when you're sitting at home by yourself. Eh? So I was in a hotel and I was making the most of it. Eggs Benedict, you know, and then some bacon and then some pancakes. And, you know, just go for it. Um, but you know it was a it was a great tournament you know and the All Blacks had um, we'd we'd had a we'd had a pretty good tournament and pretty successful and you know everyone I count myself lucky um, 
And especially, you know, you're saying, Robin, what do I look back on? Another thing that I, I missed out on is the players that I played with. You know, I think I was lucky to have played with some of the guys who went on to become, you know, really great All Blacks, um, you know, who were in their prime, you know, like Jonah, like Christian Cullen, you know, like Zinzan Brook. And, you know, there were so many in that team that you go through and you think, man, those guys are like genuine sort of greats of the game. And they were in their prime, you know, when I, when I was playing. And we had this, this um, you know, it was a pretty, pretty awesome team thing going on at, at that point. But, um, you know, we, we got to that stage in, uh, in South Africa. And, uh, yeah, you know, I can't really remember too much about the morning of that game. But uh, it all started, you know, you go to the team meeting. They were in the days, I don't know what you guys are doing now, but I don't know if the, the All Blacks are doing sort of with the team meeting just before the game where the coaches actually talk and, and stuff. But we used to do that. And, you know, Laurie... Laurie laid things bare and, you know, we, that, so that's where all the, the, everything starts, you know, and then you get on the bus and you're just kind of silent the whole way to the game. But um, you just couldn't help but notice, you know, on the way everything was, was just up, you know, and uh, so many more people in the, uh, in the streets and, uh, and as we neared um, Ellis Park there and just the crowds of people and, well, you know, it was just a, a real, just a real buzz, and everyone was in a high, and uh, you know, so much expectation from from not only All Black fans, but uh, but Springbok fans, and you know, it was just just rugby people in general. But you could see, you know, real, real, and I've and I've had it myself. You know, now when I've gone to um, gone to finals or quarter, you know, World Cup games, things like that, and you turn up, and it's you just you just there to enjoy yourself and you're with a again a group of friends you know and you're enjoying what you enjoy about rugby you know if you if you can't be playing it you've got to be there experiencing it and so um you know you you just you just knew that uh, you know that that something special was 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 happening and you get there and you can just feel the buzz from the moment you arrive um go out and have a look go into the changing room there's not a lot being said you know and um you go into the changing rooms, have a look around, put your bags down, hang your gear up, walk outside, have a look, and you know it's just all there. And the crowd, the, the stands were packed already. You know, this is hours, you know, probably a, I don't know, an hour or so, hour and a half or so out from a game. Or, and then, uh, but it's it's just all happening, you know. And you look around, and I remember uh, looking around in the stands, and it was really colourful, you know, and it was hot and. Um, and uh, you could see the guys abseiling, sort of guys hanging off the the top of the stands, you know, and because uh, you never know with South Africa, you know, geez. <laughs> and, but I don't know, police or military, I don't know what they were, but you know, they had they were they were just hanging there, you know, and they had guns, and you know, they're all in uniform and everything, and you just look around, and it was just the whole, you know, you just look around at the the experience of the whole thing, it was just awesome, and then. Um, you know, inside and preparation and that and come out. And as soon as you come running out, it's just boom, you know, the, just the atmosphere just hits you and, uh, and look around and, you know, that's, that's what I like doing. Cause I look around, you get into the middle of the field and, and um, you look around at the crowd and it's colorful and just noisy and, you know, people are dressed up and, and flags and, you know, just everything going on. And I look up and those guys were still sort of hanging around the, you know, the, the rim of the roof there and, and I look then I look in and you know you sort of notice how black is you know you get new jerseys for every game and then you just notice how black 
you know, the, the all black jersey was and all of that. And you just think, oh, I don't know, look around. And I was, you know, looking around at guys, um, you know, the Brooks and the Fitzpatricks and the, you know, just some, some of the guys had been there for, for the whole time I'd been there. We'd gone through all of this and you look around at thing and think, you know, got a little bit of confidence from that. So um, enjoyed that part. And then, uh, then things really happen when, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela comes down and, you know, the, you thought it was noisy before. And straight away it just boom and turn around. You see him walking down there, and oh, you know. So the whole, the whole occasion. Uh, then we had the spoil of the game of rugby, but uh, you know the the whole occasion was was just awesome. Um, you know the to, to play, and it was you know it was a great game too. It was um, and into overtime, and unfortunately we lost. We lost, but uh, you know that only really matters you know for a, for a couple of days. We. we um, when you come home and then you realise, you know, what it kind of meant, I think, for South Africa, you know, moving forward with, uh, you know, with everything they had to deal with. So, uh, you know, I think the result was, was kind of right. While the best team may not have won necessarily. Well, Frank, you and I have had a few beers and we've spoken about this and, and you, you're, you're spot on, you know, saying that South Africa needed something like that to, to galvanise a nation. And Nelson Mandela was obviously, you know, an unbelievable hero for, for not just our country, but of course, people around the world. Um, and, and to this day, you know, there's a lot of division mm. among society as we see. Um, I got a chance to spend a month with Joel Stransky uh, doing the commentary at the World Cup. And, you know, oh, we yeah, brought, yeah. I brought, brought you up and several stories and he just said, what a great man you are. And also how the game is, you know, so respected afterwards. It's, you know, obviously everybody wants to win a World Cup and that's great, but only a few people uh, get a chance to do that. But uh, he'd, uh, he'd, I did tell him that you said it was, it was South Africa's time, even though uh, you guys were poisoned. <laughs> I'm sure he would agree. He would have agreed, eh? Exactly. Listen, yeah. let, let's switch across. You mentioned some of your brilliant teammates. Um, you know, what was it like to to be in the midfield with uh, Walter Little? You guys shared such a, a brilliant partnership. What qualities did you admire about him, and, and why did you guys gel so well? Oh, geez, he um, he had so so much natural ability, Walter, you know, he wasn't, um, I didn't even know how he'd go these days, you know, where you, where you, um, so much discipline and training and, uh, and, and, uh, with diet, et cetera, you know, the lifestyle, I don't know how, how a Walter Little, yeah, you know, would go. And there's been many guys over and I'm sure you've seen them too over the years who, um, who were awesome back in the day, but could they have, could they have, um, well, would they have the discipline? Would you have the discipline to do what's needed today? Well, you know, Walter, he had all this this natural ability. He had the, the quickest hands, you know, that you ever seen, and and um, really good on his feet. Uh, you know, he had so many things that were so many things going for him. So, um, but I, 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 one thing with Walter, you know, and he used to smoke and he used to drink, and uh, you get off the field after a game, and the first thing you heard in Walter's uh, corner was. Uh, a can being opened and a, and a lighter, you know, and then you heard him <laughs> look around. Yep. Sure enough there, he's drinking his beer and having his cigarette and, and um, he enjoyed a good time as well. But uh, you know, that, that, um, you know, the, the relationship with Walter, with the, um, you know, with the, we played North Harbor and the chiefs and, uh, and then on with the all blacks, um, you know, he's a, he was, he was a, he was a great man actually. And, um, you know, he's uh, still see him now, and he's uh, you know we've we've run into him a few times ourselves, Dylan. You know, doing this um, doing this uh, this rugby stuff in, in Hawaii over and in uh, in California, but um, he's a yeah 
He's, he hasn't changed. That's the good thing about him. He's still shaped kind of, you know, chunky, and he's got two skinny little legs sticking out the bottom, and uh, and he's got a cigarette in his hand and a can of beer in the other hand. I will, I will enjoying I will, life. Exactly. I will say that, Frank, uh, uh, Robin, this is for your benefit as well, is um, uh, my wife, Verity, <laughs> got a chance to spend a lot of time with Frank and Walter in Hawaii when we were there. And uh, first thing she said to me was, how did Walter play for the legendary All Blacks looking like that? And I'm like, well, no, no, no. That's, he was a different, a different shape back then. And this is a good 25 yeah, yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah. Not, 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 no, he, well, he wasn't much different. <laughs> I think the general shape underneath was, is the same, but the, uh, yeah, there's stuff that's gone on over, over the years. It's been exactly. added to it. Exactly. So let's briefly talk about that. I first met you uh, through a youth development program called Play Rugby USA. Um, we visited Hawaii together working with a lot of the kids in the island. Uh, tell us a bit about your passion to give back to the next generation. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of something, and I think it's, it's born from the, um, you know, the area that I live in and the kind of people that I, that I grew up with and, and played again at our, our club with. Um, because you see so many people that, um, you know, they just miss the opportunity or, or don't get the opportunity, actually. For, for one reason or another, you know, and, and the good thing, like I said before as well, is um, all the all the natural ability that's especially, you know, New Zealand, Auckland's got the biggest Polynesian population in in the world, and South Auckland, when you're talking about Auckland, is, um, you know, probably is, is the, the biggest population uh, in Auckland. And, uh, you know, so many, man, so many great players have, have come out of that, um, out of that area, but there's a, there would have been a whole lot that have uh, you know that for one reason or another have um, have never been able to to achieve much. And you know there's uh, well you know with, with the, the with not having much you know you got you got families you got so much else going on you know in life and and sometimes you just you just can't do what you need to do you know to get ahead in in the game. So I thought to myself that um, it'll be nice to just to give a little bit back into the area. Um, and 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 show them that there's a, a pathway, you know, there in, in in you know what could be. So um, that's kind of why I got back into it. And it wasn't just with rugby; it was you know it was with life as well. Because you see you see so many people just struggle, and all for you know the, they made a few mistakes along the way somewhere, never took advantage of something, and uh, and then you know it's a, it's a long bloody time where you're uh, where you're left to struggle if, if things don't go well so that's kind of how I got into it but it's taken me all around the world you know and, and I'm happy to um, you know to I say South Auckland mainly but that's that's kind of where my focus was and where it started but you know I'm happy to go to go anywhere and it's really it's just it's just showing showing kids that um, there's a there's a whole lot of life out there and um, you know it, it can be theirs yeah, and that's that's something we've been touching on in a lot of our episodes. Is is why we want to bring these stories of, of legends like yourself to life, so young young people can can listen and whatever their dreams are. And we all started out somewhere, and when we started out, we didn't know where we were going, uh, and we had yeah, typically, yeah. you know, someone to look up to that kind of helped guide us. And uh, we're hoping some of your wisdom can uh, be passed on to the next generations uh, around the world. Uh, thanks to the technology out there. We're going to put you on the spot here with some selections here. So put on your, your, uh, your coaching hat a bit, but can you list three of your favorite teammates of all time and, uh, and why they make your cuts? Um, I'll go with Christian Cullen just because of the fact that he was, um, 
well, you know, you could make something out of nothing. The pace, um, I didn't go, I was going to say the skill, but I can't remember him passing too much or, you know, or the need for him to, to do much of that. He got the ball and he, you know, he um, did what he had to do. That was it, yeah. So I'd, I'd go with him. Um, uh, Zinzan Brook would be another, and only because he's, you know, he did, he had all the skill, that guy, um, and he had a really competitive nature. Um, you know, he'd have a go at anything, and if it didn't work the first time, he'd do it again, you know, five minutes later. And uh, um, who else would I pick? You know, would you just, oh, there's so many guys, you know, I'd, I'd even go, probably go with, Man, I could go with Jeff Wilson or uh, or Jonah. Or maybe not even on the field. You know, a guy like Glenn Osborne who just, you know, he gives it to you on the field. He gives you know, everything he's got. But then off the field, he's just one of those characters that just make, make um, you know, playing rugby and touring. You know, just what we've been talking about, Robin, with all your mates. And, and you know, it's just, just a fun time. He's, he was a clown, you know, and uh, and he just made things a... A whole lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable. So to have him sort of hanging around, he, you knew he could do what he needed to do on the field, but uh, he also had so much to offer off the field. Yeah, so many legendary names there. So, worst roommate on tour? Worst? Um, probably, uh, well, Walter actually was one of them because he was, um, you know, he'd smoke and he'd smoke inside. Um, Messi, he stunk too, actually. So that was, uh, yeah, we'll pro I'll probably go with him. And uh, another, another question for you. Most difficult inside and outside center you ever faced? Oh, yeah. They were, actually, they were all bloody quite difficult. They were, I'll tell you, there was one guy, actually, and he didn't play for um, any of the international teams, but he was a Samoan guy down in uh, New Zealand. And his name was Mila Vila. And he was one of those uh, guys that, you know, like we spoke about the early days with Samoa. And um, he was he was crazy. He was hard. He was rough and tough and crazy. And, man, he would just give it to you. Um, I played in an all-black all trial way back when. And just before it, we played his team. And uh, I spent my whole afternoon trying to avoid him, but you know, getting tipped upside down. I, I remember seeing the sky and then the, the mud and then the sky and then the mud and and uh, and try, just trying to keep away from the guy. So he would be probably my most physically difficult, um, it, it, you know, in, uh, in all, you know, in that, in that position, I'm just trying to think of, but you know, you, geez, everybody had so, you know, I could go with Tim Horan. I could go with uh, even Will Carling. I found Jeremy Guskett. I found those guys really, really hard because they, uh, you know, Jeremy Guskett, he wasn't physical by any means, but he was really, really balanced and quick. And, you know, he had just nice, just a nice way about him. So he was difficult. Will Carling was tough. Tim Horan, you know, fast and, you know, great player. And and uh, Yuppie Mulder, there's, a, you know, another guy. And, God, man, there was there's so many. I didn't even know if I could pick a, a bloody a hardest one. Yeah, that's a lot of tough competition right there. So um, who are a couple of your, your choice centers that you've seen in recent years that you like? 
Um, I like the current, uh, I'll start with the New Zealand, that um, Goodhue, I like him, Anton Leonard Brown, there's a couple of good guys down, you know, down this way that I think, um, that I think have got a lot to offer. Um, and you get to a certain age, it's bloody hard to remember names. Who, who are your Springboks? But over the years, you know, they had the Jean de Villiers and Farid Apria. I mean, Jock Farid, Jock Farid outside. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was a yeah. pretty special player. Uh, but yeah. right, Delendi. Danny Gerber. Donny Gerber was got, probably, yeah. probably my favorite. Out, outside of yourself, uh, Donny Gerber is uh, definitely uh, uh, the 13 that stands out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's and Philippe Salah, you know, there's so many, so many, you know, great centers. These days, there's some. <clears throat> well, you know, the, <clears throat> the problem now, though, you know, you don't really get a. You don't really get a chance, like as indi- individuals there. You know, they used to talk about the French flair and all of that, but I always, um, I always find that the games are all the same now. You know, everyone plays kind of the same style, and and maybe as individuals, you don't get the chance to to show, you know, the flair really. I mean, everything has to be done within a team context, but um, you know, I don't know if kind of French flair is um, is what it what it used to be. And, you know, and a guy like Danny Herber, you know, he was. Well, he was a team player, but man, he was a, he was you know such a great individual. Do those guys get the chance to shine these days, or would they? Or you know, and, and do the centres, and you know, do you get a chance to show, you know, what you got as an individual in games anymore? You know, it's hard to pick out sort of just one going. You know, that guy is like you used to do with the Kerbers and the and the Salas and you know that Tim Horan, you know those sorts of guys. You could pick pick them out because they were so different and so so um, awesome, but. These days, it's kind of all the same. They're all yeah, they, good at what they do. That's right. The game has changed a lot as well. Um, just one comment, though, on Percy Montgomery, because we definitely want to get him on social media. <laughs> yeah. I was actually I was in um, Portugal, actually, with, uh, with him a couple of years ago. And um, he had a, good, had a good chat with him. But, you know, he turns up on the international scene with white boots. You know, and that was straight away he was going to cop it. And then, you know, his name being Percy Back in those days, Percy Montgomery with white boots, and I think he didn't he have blonde hair. Did he, he did. Dye yeah, blonde, that, blonde he... tips. Blonde tips. It was blonde pretty tips, embarrassing. Yeah. I will say that it was the tips that uh, that did it. Eh? <laughs> but um, he, he t- you know, and then he goes on and plays you know, hundred and something test matches. And who would have thought at the very beginning of his career that he'd do that? Well, one thing we we found out as, as watching South Africa was that he was not an outside centre, and you confirmed that with your, uh, I think it was your right, your, your right hand off. Um, listen, Frank, m- moving along here, um, let's, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, you, a bit of a character with your teammates as well. You used to stitch people up even after they were playing. Uh, tell us a bit about the story about how you got some of your, uh, your friends involved in the charity boxing. Uh, hey, geez, it's not me that does that. It's bloody, that's the rushies in the, um, in the Fronobotica, actually. Good, I'll tell you about Rushi and, uh, and Frano. Because, uh, you know, Rushi does a lot of public speaking and Frano does a little bit too. But, uh, you know, so if, if someone can't get to something, then uh, they'll just ring up the other person and see if that they can, you know, step up. So Rushi, he had something to do. He never told Frano what it was. He had something to do. And I can't remember where the place was, in the South Island somewhere. We'll go with Christchurch. He... Um, he had something to do in Christchurch. It turns out that he wasn't able to make it, so he rings Frano up and asks him to step in for him. So he says, yep. 
yeah, he can do that, thinking he's going to go down and do the speaking thing and get paid a bit of money and that and have a good time and go home. So it turns out that he was actually, Rushy was supposed to be down there fighting in this charity boxing thing. And um, he didn't tell Frono that. So Frono went down, found out that he was in the ring with this guy who turned out to be an ex-boxer, ex-professional um, uh, boxer himself. And uh, so Frano had to step up. He couldn't get out of it because all the tickets had been sold and, you know, he'd been promoted and everything like that. So um, he uh, he went down and hopped in the ring and he said um, he got a hiding. He just spent the whole night getting beaten up by this guy who was, uh, who was a boxer. And uh, he rang Rushy up and said, what the? And uh, Rushy just had a, had a good laugh about it. He said, yeah, if I told you, you wouldn't have gone. Yes, exactly. So uh, those, those are the kind of things that, um, you know, that you, you, get, uh, you get dragged into with these guys. But, you know, the charity boxing stuff, it was, it was awesome. Um, you just get people talking about it and then you just, you know, I, I, don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever got anyone into it without them knowing but um, you know, me and Rushy, we had a we had a, a good period of time there doing that. Uh, we went over to England and uh, and and fought in a uh, a thing over there and and got paid pretty bloody well actually. And uh, Rushy, they hooked him Rushy up with this kickboxer, and um, the first punch that this guy threw broke Rushy's nose and it all started bleeding. That was the f- first punch of the first round of the f- of the evening. Um, so that was pretty funny to watch. But Rushy came back <laughs> and got a got a draw. Um, and I fought this guy, Chris Sheesby, actually. He played for England. He was a uh, loose forward. And um, I think I had more support there on the night than, than he did, actually. Because uh, he's, uh, you know, nice enough guy. I think he played set a lot of sevens for England, too, back in the day. But um, it was a bit of fun. You know, it's just those things that you, that you get up to afterwards when, you, you know, when you're twiddling your thumbs. Exactly. Let's talk a bit about uh, some fun there. Um, <laughs> got the, the chance to go to your wedding in Hawaii in recent years. Can you share us um, a bit about how do you open a bottle of wine without a corkscrew? <laughs> uh, yes, I see you've been showing that off around a little bit, eh? <laughs> I can't even remember. Where did I say I got that from? I can't remember. No, so basically what happened is we, you, I arrived at the wedding with Verity and you came to me straight away and said, Dallin, you need to help me. I've got this case of wine, but I've got no corkscrew to open. So I said, okay, well, your shoe. yeah, go get your shoe and we go across to, uh, to a wall and we started bashing against it. You saw that it was working. You brushed me aside, said, I'll take over. And then you just took one strike and the cork shot straight out. So yeah, so, and people, so, everyone happened to be filming it. That's right. That's right. I remember that. <laughs> but I have given you credit, you know, all over social media. Good, good. Yeah, I know you're showing me that. Exactly. You're big on social. So, um, <laughs> listen, we want to talk a little bit about, um, uh, in North America, the side, you know, not everybody knows about rugby, uh, but pe- everybody knows about the All Blacks. So can you just tell us a little bit about the significance uh, of the haka in the Maori culture and also what was it like performing it? Um, oh, it it's in terms of performing it, you know, that's, um, it's, it's an honor, you know, to, uh, to be able to do that. It's, it is part of, even though, you know, there's, there's been a um, there's been a bit of an argument that the All Blacks that it's done too much, you know, and not only by not only by um, the All Blacks, but um, you know, in 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 public in New Zealand, in terms of um, you know openings of it's a respect thing though, and a challenge, and you know all that, and it's got a huge 
it's got a huge standing, you know, in, in uh, the culture. But, um, you know, it's all about a challenge. And, and if you break it down, the kamate, kamate haka, you break that down and it's, you know, it's about a, a, a Māori chief that was hiding from his, um, you know, from his enemies. And he, he went into a hole and was, oh, he was, it was covered up by a woman that was sitting on top of the, uh, the opening of this hole. And, um, you know, that in itself never happened because Māori warriors never sort of, well, they, I don't think it was up to a woman in those days to, um, you know, protect a, a chief and a warrior. But, um, but he did and she did. And uh, he came out into the sun, you know, to, to fight again. So it was a, it's a bit of a challenge and, um, uh, you know, and a respect thing. And it means a huge amount to, um, you know, to especially Māori New Zealanders, but, but um, the, really the whole country. And uh, as I say, it's a, it's a respect thing. And it's done, there's, there's huckers, there's not only that one, there's, that happens to be the one that was kind of made famous, I guess, by the All Blacks. But there's, uh, there's huckers, you know, for all occasions and, and for all the tribes, they've got their own haka and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we, we, back in our day and, and even earlier than ours, we probably didn't even do it properly. You know, you just, there was no, you know, there was no, if you're not brought up around it, you, you're not going to be able to do, you know, give it the uh, respect it deserves. And uh, so there was, a, there was a, a lot of times you look back on the old days now, you know, it's, you're almost cringing, you know, at, the, uh, at what you're looking like doing it. But um, I think the credit goes to, to Buck Shelford. You know, he, um, he was the one who was saying, because they were talking about, you know, not doing it. Because we, ne- we only used to do it actually, um, never used to do it at home, only used to do it overseas. And then, um, then there was talk about not doing it at all. And, um, you know, it's caused a little bit of controversy over the years, just in New Zealand. But, um, uh, so they talked about not doing it at all. But um, they decided to do it, and then Buck said, um, "You know, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it properly." So after that, everyone sort of got schooled in in uh, what it means and and how to do it properly, and you know, all the action and things like that. So um, that's how it's done now. And then they they went ahead and and wrote the other one, the couple Bungle one, and um, that's I think that's just like an updated version for you know, what New Zealand is now and, you know, who's involved in the All Blacks because there's so many more different nationalities and, you know, that sort of stuff. So they wrote that, you know, um, to, to modernise it, I guess, for, for New Zealand and, and the team now. But, um, you know, still a huge part. And I think, you know, most people enjoy it. Most people respect it. Not everyone, that, but, you know. It's, it's definitely great insight to the background on it for listeners. And, and uh, obviously it's a big part of, of the game in New Zealand and around the world. And I know, you know, in the, even in the North American uh, audience, everybody knows the haka. Um, they may not know exactly what it is or the meaning behind it, but it's always like all blacks haka. And it's like, well, Canada has a team too. And people are like, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> Got to kind of fill them in. Yeah. But uh, thanks to the HSBC Vancouver sevens, uh, North Americans are, are getting a, a little more of a taste of it, but uh, yeah, well, uh, you guys are good at it. So, you know, gee. Canada has been playing rugby for years for play. For a long time, eh? Yeah, it's just that whole uh, freezing 90% of our country for part of the year kills us. But, uh, yeah. but we're getting there. We're getting there. And, uh, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of young young talent coming through. And, um, you know, the success our, our men and women's sevens play teams have had and even our women's 15s team 
Um, they've been in top three in the world for a number of years. So there's a lot of good talent coming up and thanks to social media and uh, being able to engage people like you with, with, with the demographic across North America is, is very, very inspiring. So um, I guess our last question for you is what advice would you have for young rugby players listening on, uh, on the rugby hive today? Um, it's, you kind of got to figure out what you want, you know, out of the, out of the game. Do you want to be, you know, do you want to go to the very top? Do you want to represent your country? Do you, you know, what, what do you actually want out of the game? And, um, you know, if you decide that representing, you know, Canada or South Africa or New Zealand or whoever is, is actually what you want to do, then you put your mind to it and you do it. You know, you, you set your goals and, and, uh, and you work, you know, you work hard um, skills there's there's a you know there's a lot of people out there now that that um, you know I, I, I think it's kind of even you know even Stephen really with uh, with skills you know anyone can learn how to pass anyone can learn how to kick you know you can do that but you've got to have a little bit of something extra you know and um, you just got to be prepared to work you know and to put in put in that that extra and um, um, that's if you want to go to the very top, you know, professionalism is a whole different, different style to, uh, to, you know, it just being a, a club guy who enjoys the game and enjoys a bit of time with his friends and, and things like that. So, um, I think, yeah, I think mainly that's it is just to figure out where you want to go, what you want to achieve. And then, then you sit, you know, you set out to, to get there. And if you, if what you want to achieve is to sit back on a Saturday night, having played a game of rugby with a, with a few mates and a couple of beers and watching it on TV, then go and do that, you know, but uh, the whole time you're going to have fun. Well, Bunty, we know you, uh, you're an older, older father these days. There's shouts and cries behind you going on. We just want to say it's been an absolute treat to have one of the greatest centers of all time with us on the Rugby Hive. Also a legend to sink a cold beverage with, a man with more stories than the Empire State Building. Bye, thank you for being on the Hive, Bunty. It's a pleasure. Pleasure, boys. Beautiful ball over the top. Yes, Seppo! Thank you for listening, you sleek sensations. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Rugby Hive Podcast and catch us on all the socials at Rugby Hive. We appreciate your support. Be safe out there and we'll see you soon.